Good jobs, quality jobs. We still have so much to do for women's rights. For the parents to go to work, you need good childcare. We will not have a successful recovery if we leave social rights. Reinventing our way of building and living. It is our right. Welcome to this edition of Eurofan Talks. Today we'll be focusing on women and particularly on gender equality. We're going to explore the gaps and inequalities that persist in employment, in pay, in care responsibilities. And we'll look at what's been done to address these issues. Particularly, we're going to look at it post-COVID and as we move towards a greener, more digital Europe. What has worked? What hasn't? And what can we do about it? To talk about this today, on the eve of International Women's Day, I am delighted to welcome Carleen Gschela, Director of the EU Agency for Gender Equality, which is based in Vilnius, and Maria Jepsen, who is the Deputy Director here at Eurofound. You're both very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So to begin with, let's just focus on International Women's Day. The 8th of March is a day which is supposed to serve to highlight the persisting inequalities that women face in their daily lives and their working situations. The focus this year is on what they're calling hashtag break the bias. Both our agencies have been involved in some element of work around these areas of discrimination, stereotypes and breaking that bias. Carlene, can you maybe open up and tell us what does that mean for you? What's IGA doing to break down the bias? Yes, sure. And um, I must say it's great to talk with you about gender equality on the occasion of International Women's Day. Although I would say that our conversation on gender equality should continue any other day, be it before or after the 8th of March. It's a very, very important topic. And specifically focusing on uh, biases and stereotyping, well, what, what IGE does, it's really relevant for policymakers. We do provide data and information that is relevant uh, on many topics, but also stereotyping. So we provide evidence to policymakers. And to mention something we found through our research when it comes down to stereotyping, very interesting in the workplace, for example, evaluators more frequently describe men using task-oriented adjectives, such as analytical, and competent. And women uh, were described using relationship-focused adjectives, such as compassionate and enthusiastic. So what we do, what we really find important is to provide evidence and information to those who design policies so that they know what is taking place, for example, in, in the workplace. And, and what I also want to stress here, by the way, the stereotyping is something that we all do, consciously, most often, I think, unconsciously. And it's our task to, to make this visible to those who need data and information. Thanks, Carlene. That's certainly an opening statement. And we'll talk a little bit more about that sort of soft skills, stereotyping uh, later in the conversation, I hope. Maria, Eurofound has also done an awful lot of work, certainly in recent times, um, but not only, on highlighting the inequalities which are facing women in the workplace and in society. Can you give us an idea of what you think have been the top priorities that we have delivered during this last couple of years? Well, during the last couple of years, I think we have looked very much into the outcomes of what Carlene was just talking about, namely the stereotyping and bias. 
on structural issues such as the gender pay gap, on gender employment gap, which are kind of long-standing issues we find in the labour market. But we have also looked very much into the impact of the pandemic in terms of the working lives of women and men, in terms of what the impact has been on their mental health, on their uh, outlook on, on the future, and in terms of work-life balance. And here we have really been able to highlight the multidimensional negative impact of the pandemic on women. There is a kind of bitter irony here when we're talking about celebrating International Women's Day, because we know that COVID-19 has hit women and hit them very hard across so many areas. We've seen that uh, low-paid female workers in the services sectors were hit most by job loss. We've also seen that an increase in teleworking has also exacerbated the work-life conflict issues, particularly for mothers of small children. And we've seen particularly an increase in the gender-based violence. So in a way, there doesn't really seem to be much to celebrate here. I mean, are we looking at a rollback on gender equality, Carlene, that, that we will not be able to address? Yeah, sure. As Maria said, the, the pandemic uh, will have a very negative impact on, on gender equality. And uh, just to mention some facts that we found through our research in, in the past period, before the pandemic, we at AIGE estimated that it would take another 60 years for the European Union to achieve gender equality. And this was before the pandemic. With all good intentions, I think uh, member states, of course, governments asked people to stay at home and we were confined. But what we see now is that sometimes home can be the worst place for people. You already mentioned the high spikes of domestic violence. Women were locked up with their perpetrators and could go nowhere and didn't know how to ask for help. But also what we see and, uh, and what became very clear is that uh, women still do significantly more childcare and housework than men. And even though fathers cared more for kids and, and children and did more ho homework during the pandemic, it's still women who take uh, the biggest share of that combination of work and private life. So they combined work, homeschooling, they cared for other dependents, etc., etc. And what we see now, and that's, that's quite worrying, is that although both women and men, of course, lost their jobs also during the pandemic, it's much more difficult for women to get uh, back on the labor market. Also because they have these care duties. And uh, we even see now, and that's most worrying, I think, that uh, the younger generations of women, because they have these care duties, they are not available for the labor market anymore. So that will have an impact in the future. And another thing I would like to mention here is, of course, if you don't have a job, uh, you might be financially dependent on someone else. And that doesn't really help gender equality. Hopefully, hopefully through the reform process in the European Union, member states will take this information seriously and focus on gender equality in the reform process. I mean, Maria, when you hear Carlene, I mean, she's perhaps got a slight optimistic tone to her voice that we will be able to recover from what has happened over the last period. But are the inequalities that we saw, for example, in our survey, Living, Working and COVID-19, are they reparable? Will we actually be able to recover in terms of gender equality progress? Well, I think, as Carlene said, we'll recover, but in the long term, not in the short term. But I do also think that maybe the pandemic has 
highlighted the gender inequalities that were already present, but perhaps exacerbated during the pandemic and have given rise to a larger awareness of, for example, working conditions and pay conditions for a lot of the low paid women that were what we call frontline or essential workers that uh, gender violence has become unacceptable and we're seeing a lot of initiatives in terms of kind of getting to uh, to terms with the fact that gender violence is unacceptable, a movement we didn't see some years ago. And I, like Carlene, perhaps thinks that the direst statistics that we've seen from the pandemic will make policymakers uh, gender mainstream a little bit more than they did before because the statistics were so sharp in kind of displaying and highlighting the gender inequalities that we have in terms of care, in terms of work and in terms of pay. So in that sense, I think we can go either way. Either we move on from where we are now and we take the lessons learned and we try to do better, which I hope is what will happen. Uh, or we don't learn from the lessons and then, yeah, I would agree, then then the perspectives are not very positive. But, I mean, we know that the gender equality strategy, which has been in place since 2020 and uh, runs till 2025 at least, we know that it aims to address some of these core issues that you raised, uh, Carlene. Pay transparency, gender pay gap, gender balance on company boards, work-life balance, etc., etc. I mean, they're very worthy ideals, very worthy goals, But is this the real priority, do you think? Is this what is going to address the fundamentals of inequality? Well, like Maria, I, I also see um, very positive developments. And, and you mentioned the gender equality strategy of the European Commission. And I think it's actually giving a really good push to gender equality in the European Union. Because what is a very important element of that strategy is gender mainstreaming. So the Commission calls upon member states to take gender into account in, in all their, let's say, all the, the portfolios. And what we see at AIGE, and it's really a positive development, is that we get more and more requests from member states, but also from the Commission, to support them in gender mainstreaming. We have tools, we have the knowledge, they ask for our assistance. And maybe also to touch upon another element that, that I find really relevant and that we have also made visible through some of our reports is the huge economic benefits of gender equality. And that's something that, that we tend to forget sometimes. Of course, we talk about women's rights, we talk about gender equality, but let's not forget that there's also a huge economic benefit when we take gender equality into account. And to make it very specific... Uh, we did a study on the economic benefits of gender equality, and, and this study showed that more gender equality can boost economic growth and job creation. And isn't that what we are aiming at in the European Union? We estimated that it could create up to 10.5 million additional jobs by 2050 and push the EU employment rate up to 80%. Well, that's great data, no? That's great information that I hope that member states will see. And will also seriously take into account when going through this reform process. Gender equality can boost economy. So gender equality is good for us, good for society and good for the economy. So Maria, on the employment gap and the pay gap, Eurofant has done a wide range of research work in these areas. We also know that female employment has been growing faster than male employment in the highest paying jobs, which are those that are accounting for the, the top 20% of, of employment by average wage. So do you think we're actually looking at even more inequalities, Maria? in the labour market in the future. 
There are more women at work and there will be more women at work, but they're in the high paid jobs. Are they leaving the minimum wage, low paid, precarious sisterhood behind? I think this is a trend for women as well as for men. I think it's a general trend in the in the labor market that we are going to more towards more polarization. Uh, and this polarization needs to be taken uh, seriously in terms of policy measures to counter some of the negative effects that can get out of this. I still would say that the majority of women actually work in jobs that are found in the lower income brackets in the labor market. So that's where we find the majority of women. It is true that the growth in the higher paid jobs, it's faster for women than for men, but they're coming from a very low level. So they still have a lot of kind of catching up to do in this. So with the polarization, yes, but we still need to make sure that the that we keep an eye on the working conditions and pay conditions of women in the lower deciles of the labor market. Eurofound has a long-standing and wide-ranging work within uh, on looking at the, the structural gender inequalities. We have the European Jobs Monitor, which we use extensively to identify the structural changes in the labor market. Uh, where we see that women's employment has grown faster in the high-paying jobs than for, for men, but they, women are still concentrated more in the lower-paid jobs. We also use our European Working Conditions Survey to monitor very closely the job quality, both for women and for men, and we identify that the job quality dimensions are very different for men and for women. And we have, over the past years, made research work with regard to the gender employment gap, where we identify that the uh, employment, gender employment gap is stagnating at around 12%. And this is actually costing the European Union something like 320 billion euros annually. Another piece of research or strand of research where we highlight the gender inequalities is with regard to the minimum wage. And currently we do publish an annual minimum wage where we identify who are the minimum wage earners. And here we see that 60% of minimum wage earners are women, but women actually represent less than 50% of the labor market, meaning that they, women are disproportionately found in the wage brackets around the minimum wage, meaning very low wages. Nearly 9% of women earn around the minimum wage, and it's only 5% for men. And moving forward, we have a big pilot project on minimum wage where we will look into the collectively agreed minimum wages. And here again, we're concentrating on sectors where there's a high concentration of female workers. And so here again, the gender dimension comes out very strongly in terms of how collective agreements can actually ensure an adequate minimum wage. Eurofound is also setting up a project on the multidimensional gender inequalities because gender inequalities, we've spoken a lot about gender inequalities in the labor market here, but gender inequalities are also very persistent in the living conditions. And this uh, research will really try to combine the inequalities that we observe within the labor market with the gender inequalities that we also observe in living conditions. This in particular affects single mothers where energy poverty is clearly an issue. And I wanted to talk about the gender pay gap because it is the widest in, in the highest quintile. But I'm also wondering, what does that say? And reverting a little bit back to what Carlene said earlier, what is it about women, perhaps? Why are we not in a position to be able to bargain for better wages when that wage gap remains so persistent? I think this is 
getting maybe a little bit back to what Carlene was uh, working early on in terms of bias and in terms of stereotyping in the workplace. We know that women, there's a glass ceiling. So women, they don't go all the way up on the career ladder. Uh, or they tend to be fewer going all the way up on the career ladder. And on top of that, return to education is lower for women, especially in the higher paid jobs, uh, which means that even though we've seen more women getting a higher level education these days, they don't seem to reap the benefits in terms of the higher pay that should come along with this. And that is basically down to the very segregated labor markets that we have in terms of sectors and in terms of occupations and in terms of tasks, as Carlene was, was evoking. And so those are some of the issues that we need to get to terms with in the labor market. Is It's not because you do a care job that you should be less paid and doing another kind of task. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's where we need to go these days, is to go back to giving the right value to the right job. Yeah, that's a long road to go down, but I think that's where we need to head. So it's about sectors, it's about structure, but it's also about stereotypes. And it is about that internalized bias that we all have, which sort of accepts and agrees with a system that clearly has still got 14.1% of a gender pay gap across the European Union. Um, but Carlene, coming back to this, I mean, pay and employment are clearly very much to the fore of women's, you know, everyday lives. But it feels like that still today, when we talk about women's equality, the default position is to revert to talk about childcare, talk about work-life balance, as if that is the unique sort of situation where we place women when we discuss equality. Um, is that not a very normative approach to, to gender equality in this day and age? Are we not beyond this? Yeah, well, it, it is true that um, the risk is that we see this as, as responsibility of women and that women should change and that women should take a different approach. But we are talking about gender equality, which is equality between women and men. But for this discussion, it's still very important that we provide, let's say, policymakers and other stakeholders with the relevant data and information so that we know where to push, which buttons to push, what to change. And talking about this specific topic of work-life balance and how we can, let's say, make the situation more even, more equal for women and men, it's important that we, we know what data we are talking about. Of course, work-life balance conflicts have increased for many, many parents, eh? both women and men. They all tried to cope with mental stress and burnout during the pandemic um, this was, by the way, especially the case for mothers of young children trying to combine telework, supervision of online classes and childcare. But now looking at some data, our research shows that across the EU, more than half of women of childbearing age who are not in paid work say that the main reason they cannot look for a job is because of family responsibilities. And this is really, uh, let's say, an alarming figure, 53%. And when it comes to men, the figure is 8%. To mention a few other data or things we found through our research, women have been doing about 36 hours of unpaid care work a week. That's almost 2,000 hours a year, which to put it into context is more or less what you give to a full-time job. The value of unpaid care work has been estimated to be around 9 trillion euros each year globally. I mean, when you hear these figures, the only thing I hope is that policymakers, who are hopefully designing the best policies possible, mm. 
that they take these figures into account. But it's not only the data about women, but both data about men and women and knowing which buttons to push when it concerns policy uh, policy making. Yeah, as you said earlier, it makes economic sense and people should be motivated by a sort of a self-interest, if, if nothing else, um, in terms of moving this forward. And of course, gender is not necessarily restricted to just the very binary definition of men and women always. So when we talk about uh, women and men's equality, we have been talking about that in the past, but clearly the scope is much broader. And Carlene, I know that in IGA you've expanded the work to include this to a large degree over recent times. What what has that meant to, to the ongoing debate? Well, let's say the broader approach has, has always been the scope of IGA's work. If you look at IGA's mandate, well, we focus on men and women in all their diversity. United in diversity has been the motto of the European Union since the new millennium. So that's that's important to take into account. And when you look at how IGA collects data, for example, if you look at the Gender Equality Index, we strive to reflect this diversity. So we take an intersectional approach, um, as it is called, where data are, are available. We try to also include characteristics like age, ability, disability, migrant background, ethnicity, sexual orientation or socioeconomic background. And when I say where we can find the data, we include them. Of course, we cannot always find them, which is sometimes a little bit annoying, I must say. (laughs) So there we also try to find um, other information through our own surveys. And I mean, if you do a solid gender analysis, which is always the first step of gender mainstreaming, you have to understand how the situation of men and women is in a particular area. If you do it well, you certainly touch upon these other characteristics. So this is a very important instrument. You can only develop the best policies ever if you understand what the data are telling you. We also work closely together with another sister agency, the Fundamental Rights Agency, who focus on a also a broad range of uh, characteristics and um, and we continue the good work. Looking at what we've discussed so far, uh, Maria, we've looked at the impact of COVID, but of course, in parallel, we have the transition to the green economy and the digital. Do you think that we are likely to see the transition to green and digital actually offset some of the inequalities that we've seen in the system? Or do you think it's possible that we are going to see an exacerbation as a result of this? Well, once again, it can go either way. As we go in the twin transition towards digital and green transition, new jobs will be created and old jobs will be destructed. But I think it's also important to to realize that while we are transiting, kind of some of the bigger sectors where women work, like public service, education and health, are also very much growing sectors. So we need to ensure that the underlying problems we already have in these sectors are addressed and that we don't only address the new challenges that we will face in terms of the transition, which will be that we will get more jobs in in sectors that are male-dominated, like construction, like STEM and so forth, where we need to have a very specific pause to make sure that women actually can engage into these uh, occupations. But at the same time, we need to make sure that some of the underlying problems we already have in the existing sectors that will continue to grow are addressed. And have we seen recently in research findings um, the impact of this on women's lives, specifically in these areas? 
Yeah, when it concerns uh, digitalization that you mentioned as an important and, and growing topic, we did a study for the Slovenian presidency of the European Union and uh, we found that um, we, we looked into platform work such as ride hailing and food delivery and also at the impact of artificial intelligence. And we see it's, it's transforming our economies and we also found what it means for gender equality. A few details from that study, a few um, pieces of information. Platform work is growing and artificial intelligence is increasingly becoming part of our day-to-day -day lives. And we know that already 10% of the EU population has done work via platforms such as Uber. We interviewed some 5,000 of these workers and we found that they are mainly young, highly educated and taking care of children, in particular if they are women. And more than a third of women doing platform work told us they do this because they can combine these jobs with their private life. But many work at night, the weekends, and at hours it cannot choose. So it comes, I mean, it combines both positive elements for the workers, but also negative elements. And um, what I sincerely hope is that EU member states will welcome the European Commission's new proposal for legislation to improve the working conditions of platform workers. And this will certainly benefit women. And looking at the move to climate change, and particularly in the context of the Green Deal, do you think there are specific gender-targeted policies that are required to make these transitions equitable and fair for women and gender equality more generally? This is really an interesting topic, because if we don't watch out, we could take a completely gender-neutral approach. And I don't think that many people realize that specifically in this topic, gender is such an important element. From research we did in the past, we know, but it's we don't have enough information yet, but that the climate change is having a different impact on, on, on women and men. But also women and men impact uh, the climate differently. To give you a few examples to make it more concrete, the, the ones most vulnerable to the consequences of climate change tend to be women. For example, energy poverty is disproportionately affecting single women. And with all the good intentions of the Green Deal, many of these measures are very, very um, also on a household level. And one can imagine that, for example, for single women, uh, it's, it's impossible if they have a small job, it's impossible to pay for such measures. So that's something we should take into account. And we also know from our research that women show more concern for the climate than men, which means that we have to make the impact on women and men uh, more visible for all citizens. Another thing I would like to mention here, that's the decision makers, uh, the ministers and other decision makers that work on green topics are mostly men. And that can't be true. I mean, we have 50% of women, 50% of men, uh, roughly, in our population. So it's important that also women's voices are heard in this, in this portfolio. So the representation of women in the decision making and the policy process. Maria, Eurofant has also been working in this area. Do you want to just give an indication there of how we can see the socioeconomic implications of the transition towards climate change impacting women? Well, um, what Colleen said in terms of the, the gendered impact of both the climate change and of the mitigation policies comes out very strongly in, in the research that we've conducted because we know that climate change impacts different income groups 
uh, in different ways. And it's lower income groups that are more hardly hit. And we have a higher proportion of women in the lower income brackets. So that in that sense, it's very important to put these gendered glasses on because it's not only about income, it's also about gender. And secondly, well, on, on the mitigation uh, policies that have been put into, into place uh, in terms of retrofitting, in terms of grants to, to uh, move towards electrified transport, we have in the research uh, identified that the lower income households cannot benefit from this, either because they are not household owners or because they cannot make the capital investment that is needed, but then at the same time, they are the ones uh, that are most uh, susceptible to have energy poverty. And here in these income brackets, as I said, you know, we have a majority of women, so they are harder hit in terms of the lack of policies targeted towards uh, lower income brackets, as well as being impacted by the, the climate change. So we will we could risk having a compoundment of energy poverty, what we call transport poverty, uh, making uh, situations even more difficult uh, in the future. But I think that exactly like agencies like Eurofound and AIG can highlight these issues, can highlight the data behind it and make policymakers aware that these are areas that you need to take closer look into and be very well aware when we're transiting that we make a transition that is socially fair. Good. And getting to a little bit more um, of a human, personal approach to this, it's important that we don't see this always in terms of theory, in terms of research, in terms of technical policy approach. And I think sometimes it's interesting to try and see how does this actually impact on people's lives? And both of you have at this stage, you know, climbed the ladder and you now occupy high-ranking positions in the world of work. If you were to talk to the incoming generation, daughters or indeed your sons, what are the takeaways of those experiences, Maria? Takeaway of those experiences is I think that all citizens should uh, push their governments to put in place the right policies uh, to ensure that there's a gender equality, meaning uh, adequate and affordable care structures, right for parental, paternity and maternity leave. Uh, and at the same time, also engage with workplaces that uh, actually promote uh, gender equality, both for when men and for women. What we know is that job quality, for example, is not, the, the levels might be more or less the same for men and women, but the components of the job quality for men and women are not the same. Women have a higher job quality when it comes to work-life balance. And that has to do with the fact that companies might expect women to engage more with with um, measures that promote work-life balance, whereas men are not expected to do this. So what we need are workplaces to kind of live up to it, that this is an issue for men and women. Like Carlene was saying before, you know, there is a responsibility for men to engage with this. I would also say that talking about work-life balance, as we talk a lot, is not always true. No, work-life balance is uh, maybe not always a balance. And sometimes, you know, you need to put your focus on the work and sometimes you need to put your focus on life and society and companies need to realize that this is what real life is about for men and for women as well. But do you think, Maria, that for your daughters, the world of work and the society that they live in is a better one in terms of gender equality than the one you experienced? 
I think that's a very difficult question to to answer. I think it's how we move forward from now on. I think I've been very lucky in terms of the countries I've lived in, Denmark and Belgium. I had uh, smaller children because there was a lot of care service, because th there was legislation in place that enabled me to actually combine work and life, despite the fact there was always a balance. And then I had very good uh, workplaces that actually enabled me to to focus on different parts of this uh, during my, my career. Now, will my daughters have the same opportunity? I, I sincerely hope so. And I do think that the folks that we have today in terms of saying that gender inequality is unacceptable and we need to do something about it in terms of uh, gender violence, which is, is a fundamental flaw in our societies with regard to how workplaces engage with women and with men in terms of their careers and the fact that they actually have a life outside of work. Uh, can we move this one forward? Yeah, then they will have a better uh they will be in a better place than I was, but I have to say that I feel that I've been in a very lucky place. Carleen, what would be your own personal feeling on this? Well, I have mainly three takeaways um, that I would like to share. So if you want something, be vocal about it. Even if you think that your boss might see your qualities and competencies, if you don't speak up, uh, you might stay invisible. So it's important to speak up if you want something, if you want a promotion, if you want to apply for a certain job, if you want a training, just say it. Don't stay silent. That's the first one. The second one is also one that Maria mentioned, is the combination of work and private life. I have been a single mother for uh, several years and I had a very busy job. And I also made clear to my colleagues, and I, not, not in the complaining mode, but just I, I showed them my reality. It, it meant that I couldn't work uh, in the weekends or in the evenings uh, per se. And yeah, that, that again, I was vocal about this without complaining, but just showing my situation. And thirdly, and it's something I said to my daughter and my two sons, it's important to be financially independent. Because if you're financially independent, you can do whatever you want. You might end up in situations where it's great to be financially independent and I'm very proud to see that, um, well, my, my daughter, certainly, she's very vocal and she has a great job. And uh, the same for my oldest son. The youngest is still in, in, uh, in university, but I'm sure he will follow the same path. I think that's very interesting because we started on International Women's Day and both of you have referred to the need for women and the younger generation to maintain their level of assertiveness, I suppose is the word I would like to use without stereotyping, um, and to become and remain vocal about their rights and their needs. So I think we've looked a little bit uh, at this, at what Eurofound and IGA have done, and you've indicated to me to a large degree your, your issues of what we talk here of talk to me in three. Uh, but essentially that is what would you say to policymakers if there were the three key challenges that they needed to address to progress the gender equality issue into the next generation? Is there something that you would like to add to that? Talk to me in three, Maria. Well, I think that what is important, is, as Carleen mentioned early on, is to make sure that the change in terms of gender equality is not the responsibility only of women. And I think that the change we see today, it, this is a responsibility of men and women. Men have a very strong role to play in terms of uh, breaking the stereotypes, breaking the, the bias, and also taking up some of the unpaid uh, care work. 
So that would be something that I think that would be important for policymakers kind of to onboard when, when we talk about gender mainstreaming, when we talk about moving policies forward. Then a second, I would say, is that it's important to make sure that the work-life balance directive is appropriately implemented and carried out to actually live up to the expectations in terms of providing work-life balance for men and for women. And then we need to push on on the pre-transparency. I'm an economist. I believe that you act on what you see. So if we have figures on pay inequalities in your workplace and you see them very apparent, you will start acting on them and they will become unsustainable because they will create an unfair workplace. So for me, this is a very important element to push forward on. Thank you, Maria. Carlene, in your elevator pitch to the policymaker in three. Well, I would focus on on the following areas, the field of care. It's a really important uh, topic because there's a big imbalance uh, between how women and men are involved. The second portfolio I would like to mention here is gender-based violence. Uh, We mentioned it before, we saw high spikes of gender-based violence. But I think that specifically the focus on new forms or specific forms of violence is is important. Cyber violence, intimate partner violence, it's these new types of, of violence or these maybe more unknown types of violence where we need to collect more data and also work on, on definitions that can be used EU-wide. And the third one I would like to mention specifically because it's a worrying trend that we have been seeing for a long time, but it's it's getting more and more important, is uh, anti-gender initiatives that we see in the European Union. So there's movements that, that's, that speak against gender equality. And we have to understand where this comes from, how they are organized. And this is what we are currently looking into as a European Institute for Gender Equality. So field of care, gender-based violence and anti-gender initiatives, that's uh, what I would like to give as as main policy areas where we can really make more progress. Thank you, Carleen. And thank you, Maria. I think what has been clear specifically here is that this is definitely a shared responsibility and the desire to ensure that that is shared not only between women and men, but across society at large. Um, And there are challenges, uh, there are policies in place, and they will grow and develop. We've covered a lot of issues today, uh, focusing on care, work-life balance, pay, uh, gender-based violence, as you referred to earlier, employment, and of course, much more. Um, It is a conversation, as you said at the start, Carlene, that continues, and we hope this will go well beyond International Women's Day on the 8th of March. Um, But thank you very much to you you both. Thank you to you, Carlene, uh, and to Maria for sharing your thoughts and your experience on this uh, fundamental issue for both uh, women and for men. So thank you also to our listeners. Uh, You can feel free to comment, question, query, anything you've heard today at hashtag EurofanTalks. As always, you can listen back to this podcast and all of our previous editions on youth, sustainable work, future of Europe. And don't forget to tune in to our upcoming podcasts, which will continue to explore all of the key areas that are related to living and working in Europe today. Please access any other information on any of the issues we've discussed today, particularly looking at Eurofound or IGA's websites. Follow us on our social media channels. And until next time, when Eurofound talks to you. Good jobs, quality jobs. We still have so much to do for women's rights. 
for the parents to go to work, you need good childcare. We will not have a successful recovery if we leave social rights. Reinventing our way of building and living. It is our right 